Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 25, ton prototokon. Coming to you today again from the Alamo with Jim. It occurred to me recently that sometimes looking at the camera, I, I pray before the message with my eyes open and It reminded me of our first arrival in this area back in 1978, November of 78. The first message I ever preached was very short. It was an introduction. And we had some visitors in the audience that were from a local famous TV Christian ministry and some representatives of a so-called interfaith Christian pastoral group, and they called us in to talk to us because apparently we had invaded the dominant Christian culture of the area through the radio program that we had then, telephone talk time. And so we were accused of doing several things. One was because people were listening to the show and sometimes they'd come to our church services sometimes to stay in the church. We were called sheep stealers. And because I taught both in a church setting and on the radio, they told me that I was uh, accused of double feeding, double feeding the sheep. So we were stealing the sheep and overfeeding them or double feeding them. But the third accusation that I remember very well, they said, you prayed with your eyes open. And uh, I didn't think there was a biblical protocol about that. In fact, uh, if I see Jesus or if I see the Father and the eyes of my heart, I can keep my eyes open. But in fact, oftentimes I pray on the way to church in traveling 50 miles an hour, and if I prayed with my eyes closed then, the results could be tragic. But that was one of our early experiences. The friend, my friend that was with me at the time said, well, he had to keep his eyes open because there were so many vipers in the audience and had to keep his eye open for them. I remember that. Well, that's a very kind memory to have, I'm sure. I'm sure you're glad to hear about that. But today, we're continuing in Hebrews. And I won't even begin with prayer because I'm believing that you're all ready to receive the word of God. And as they used to say in the dominant Christian culture, I'm sure you're all prayed up. Now, we've been in a season in which we have not been assembling together in physical proximity. And... It is certainly not out of disobedience to Hebrews 10.25. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some is. On the contrary, it is in obedience to Hebrews 10.19-22, a very much more important mandate, where we are commanded to draw near to the heavenly holy of holies through the veil that's been torn, which is the flesh of Christ. The initial recipients of this epistle, which is kind of a homily or a sermon or word of encouragement in an epistle, well, they were in a crisis, a social crisis, a political crisis, in which they received reproach and ostracism from the dominant culture at the time, if they assembled together as worshipers of Jesus Christ. So for them to assemble together kind of costs something. It sometimes costs their reputation or their social standing. And so because some who were spiritually weary and had what we might call spiritual fatigue and who were beginning to drift from their bold previous confession of faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, some of them were habitually uh, abandoning 
the assembling of themselves together when assemblies were called. And this is not the case with us. In fact, it's mostly to the contrary. From rumblings I've heard, many of us want to be in physical proximity with one another. But for now, that's not God's will. And it has not been for several weeks now. It is God's desire in this time that we draw near to him. The result will be that he will draw near to us, James 4, 8, in ways that we maybe have not known before. So there is a time for physical proximity. And even a time for what Paul called the holy kiss or the greeting. But there's also a time to refrain from embracing, as Ecclesiastes 3 says, and even to refrain from assembling, physically assembling. Times like this may be necessarily longer in the future. The dominant culture of our time is not moving our way, generally not moving God's way. And no matter what kind of awakening of faith may arise because of crises like the one we're experiencing now, this cosmos, according to 1 John 5.19, cosmos, is totally under the sway of the evil one. And God's people will always need the full armor of God. And we may not always need masks out in public, but we will always, in our stint in this world, we will always need the helmet of salvation. This is a time when each one is commanded to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Each one, everyone. This time could even extend, you know, beyond the moment when science, which is one of the new gods of our time, says it's safe to come back together. We don't know, but we seek God's will on the matter. Imagine when we do come together, each one of us being individually strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Imagine the enrichment of our fellowship. Imagine the momentum we'll give one to another and to each other for our forward progress in the spiritual life. Now, during this time, I believe, and I've said this before, that Hebrews is the perfect place to be in the scriptures. No other part of the word of God more clearly calls the readers ever forward. We're always on a forward motion line. It calls us to go on to perfection, Hebrews 6.1. It calls us to go to Christ outside the camp calls us to labor and strive to enter into eschatological rest. Hebrews, perhaps better than any part of the New Testament, calls us to an ever forward motion and imparts to us powerful momentum to that end. Hebrews 4 speaks of a Sabbath Rest that remains for the people of God. That means it's not for us now. It's for us in the future. We're not told to rest on our laurels now. We're told to labor to enter into that rest or we're called to fight.
That rest is not now. There's a rest that remains for us, and it's the eschatological eternal Sabbath that comes at the parousia. We don't rest now. We fight. We move forward. We press toward a goal. We strive to enter that rest. Now, by saying that, I don't mean that we don't have peace and that we don't even have faith rest in the sense of confident assurance in God's promises. Of course we do. And we have peace. We've been bequeathed with Jesus' own peace and not the peace that the world gives through its manifold sedations. Much more will no doubt be forthcoming on this theme. Let's move forward. So far, we have a working translation of the first six verses of Hebrews. First, there's the initial exordium, 1, 1 to 4. Then there's the florilegium, 1, 5 to 13. And so far, we've got this for the initial exordium. And this is kind of a working translation. It's not our final one. In many parts and in various ways, long ago, God, who spoke provisionally to the fathers and the prophets in these last days, has spoken definitively to us in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, who has made purification for sins, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this ignites the florilegium or a catena of verses, mostly from the Psalms, but also from elsewhere in Hebrews 1, 5. And so far we have 1, 5 and 6. It reads like this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, says verse six, when he leads his firstborn into the world, he says, worship him, all you angels or all of God's angels. Now, the allusion to the song of Moses, as it's called, in the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32, 43 and this is important because not only is Psalm 97.7, or the Greek translation 96.7, quoted here, but Deuteronomy 32.43 in the Greek version is also pointed at here. The Greek version of Deuteronomy 42, or 32 rather, 43, says, let all the angels of God worship him. And it shows that Moses, for this is called Moses' song, Moses spoke worshipfully of the one who is superior to himself. To the apostate leaders of Second Temple Jerusalem, who claimed Moses as their own prophet and who were planning to kill Jesus, according to John 5.18, Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. John 5:46. So writing about Jesus, Moses sang, quote, "Let all the angels of God worship him." Keep in mind in heart that the son's superiority to angels that's being evinced in this florilegium will be followed in Hebrews by proof that the son, that is Jesus, is also superior to Moses. 
Hebrews 3, 3 through 6, Hebrews eleven twenty six refer to that. Keep in mind and in heart that the superiority of the Son over angels and of Jesus over Moses logically leads to the superiority of the better, Hebrews 8, 6, the new, Hebrews 9, 15, and everlasting, Hebrews 13, 20, covenant. of which Jesus is the mediator, superior to the transient and obsolete covenant, which was spoken by angels and mediated through Moses at Mount Sinai. Now the PT is operating in a strategy here throughout Hebrews, all the way up through 13. He's operating in a strategy to break a potentially harmful emotional attachment to that which was glorious in its time but had lost its glory in the light of the greater glory that had come when God spoke with definitive finality in a son. Perhaps the spirit is breaking us away from the wrong kind of attachment that can be formed when we assemble together. There are wrong ways and wrong attitudes and right attitudes. It misses the mark here in Hebrews, and I've heard this accusation about John, about Paul, and about the writer to Hebrews. It misses the mark to assume that the writer is hostile to Judaism, and it's an egregious error to say that he is anti-Semitic. Like Paul... The author of Hebrews recognizes the glory that had been associated with the first covenant, the covenant at Sinai. But like Paul, he also recognized and proclaimed that the glory of the new covenant caused the glory of the old to pale by comparison. If we can use a nearly dead metaphor. Paul's striking contrast in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, and I wish I could develop this fully, but I won't right now. But Paul's striking contrast in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 shows this reality by the contrast of Moses and Jesus and the contrast of the glory on Moses' masked face. Moses wore a mask for 40 years. You think you're getting tired of it. This glory on Moses' veiled or masked face faded over time. And that's to be compared with the unfading splendor and glory of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 goes on to say that we all, with unmasked faces, unveiled faces, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are transformed from one degree of glory to the next, even by the Spirit of the Lord, into that image. And so in 2 Corinthians 13, make that 3, 11, 2 Corinthians 13, 11 is pretty good too. But in 2 Corinthians 3, 11, Paul wrote, for if it was fade, if what was fading away was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Paul is not anti-Judaic and by no means anti-Jewish. He, like the author of Hebrews, is a Jew. He recognizes that the old covenant had its glory, but that its glory had faded away. In a modus operandi, that's operandi rather, that's not too dissimilar from the PTs in Hebrews, Paul was focusing the attention of his readers not on the things which are seen, and which are transient and evanescent, 
but on things that are presently unseen and everlasting. 2 Corinthians 4.18. Things like the everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13.20. Paul later says that he and all those who are focusing on Christ as the mediator of the everlasting covenant walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. This is a powerful practicality that embraces, for example, all of Hebrews 11, where faith is a means of action and a means of perseverance. Both the apostle and the PT, pastor theologian who wrote Hebrews, were concerned or as our British siblings would say, they were keen to gently pull their readers away from an inappropriate attachment to a glory that had passed away and to focus their attention on Jesus, the mediator of a new and better and everlasting covenant in which God is in us, both willing and doing his own pleasure. The old covenant's sacrificial system involved the performance of sacrifices, and Hebrews 10.3 says, and in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Hebrews 10.3. But as Paul wrote, In agreement with that, he said the Old Covenant was a ministry of condemnation. And he contrasted this radically with the New Covenant that he called a ministry of justification or righteousness in 2 Corinthians 3.9. The PT operates with a similar strategy contrasting the first or former covenant with its remembrance of sin, he contrasts that with the new and everlasting covenant in which God explicitly promises, I will never again remember their sins. Hebrews 8.12, Hebrews 10.17, confer with Jeremiah 31.31-34. Now, I'll ask this question. Why would someone want to remain sentimentally attached to a system or a tradition that constantly reminded them of their sins? Well, the answer is found in the fact that we are naturally attracted and gravitate toward that which destroys us. As the psalmist said in Psalm 119.25, My soul cleaves to the dust or to the ground. My soul cleaves to the dust. It gravitates toward the dust. But we are supernaturally drawn to a Savior. He raises the poor from the dust. Psalm 113 and verse 7. There are two ways to go. Obey the natural gravitation to the dust or the supernatural draw to the Lord who raises the poor from the dust. Now, it's not my intention here to present a thorough contrast of the two covenants. You can do that if you want in your own personal study. But merely to lay out for you where the writer's going with this scriptural presentation of evidence for the superiority of the sun over angels. So let's go back to this florilegium in Hebrews 1.6. Hebrews 1.6, as we observed, with its reference to the firstborn, ton prototokon, the firstborn, involves an allusion to Psalm 89, 26 and 27 which is in the Greek text or the Septuagint, Psalm 88, 27 to 28. And this is done by the 
rabbinical or the rabbi strategy of exegesis called Gezera Shala, when a term is used and identifies one passage with another, firstborn. And so in Psalm 88, 27 to 28 of the Greek text, which is Psalm 89, 26 and 27 in your Bibles, probably, it says, he shall call upon me, my father, you are my God and supporter of my deliverance. And verse 28 says, the father says this, and I will make him a firstborn. There it is. Prototokos. High among the kings of the earth. Remember, we're dealing with coronation psalms here. Royal psalms. In Hebrews 1.8, we're going to enter into the quotation of a royal wedding psalm. But this psalm, Psalm 89, or 88 in the Greek, is significant for Hebrews and for the argument of the PT for many reasons. I thought of seven off the top of my head the other day, and I wrote them down. Firstly, we notice the interaction of the father and the son in this passage. In fact, the son is heard speaking with the father, calling him my father. You hear the Lord Jesus doing that throughout the Gospels, especially John. And this finds a connection with 2 Samuel 7.14, which was alluded to in Hebrews 1.5, or quoted, I will be his father, and he will be my son. In both cases, 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89, the son is described as the royal descendant of David, but also as the son of God. Secondly, the second reason why this psalm is important. This verse fits in a dialogue between the father and the son, such as we have in Hebrews. The father says to the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2.7, quoted in Hebrews 1.5. In Hebrews 1.8, and I'm anticipating where we're going here, in which Psalm 45.6 is quoted, which is the Septuagint of 44.7, the Father says to the Son, Your throne, God, is forever and ever. These are all statements made on the occasion of or around the occasion of the son's exaltation, which also involves his coronation. By contrast, Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, in this case, quoting a Greek version of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which again is the Septuagint, Psalm 39, 7 to 9, it says, coming into the world, cosmos there is used. That's referring to this present world, which 1 John five nineteen says is currently under the sway of the evil one. Now, we can't be superstitious about everything that nations do and nations' leaders do and belligerent nations do, but we do have to be aware that this world is a world under the sway of the evil one. And our battle is not against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil in the high places, in heavenly places, angelic evil, principalities and powers. And therefore, oftentimes, the most sinister, sup, the most sinister suspicions, let's say it this way, not superstitions, but suspicions, sometimes our most sinister suspicions about, say, a belligerent nation and its government may one day prove to be true. This world 
We're not of this world. We're in it. And we're embattled. We're in it. We're not of it. We're born of God. And the wicked one, the evil one, doesn't touch us. He's not, he doesn't have a place with us. He doesn't have sway over us unless we yield it to him. So, let's carry on. In Hebrews 10.5, the son coming into the world, that's this world, the world that he conquered. Coming into this world, he, the son, says to the father, sacrifice and offering is not what you want. Instead, you prepared a body for me with whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. In other words, that whole system of Levitical sacrifices, he says, you took no pleasure. You weren't satisfied by their offerings. Then I said, this is the son speaking to the father as he enters into this world by incarnation. Look, I've come. It's written about me. In the headline of the book, to do your will, O God. The Son calls the Father, O God. The Father calls the Son, O God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus calls the Father, God, as he enters into this world. The Father calls Jesus God as he enters into the future world and commands all the angels to worship him. So we not only have the immense privilege of seeing Jesus, that is with the eyes of our heart, we hear him too through the megaphone of Hebrews. In any case, Hebrews 10.5 has to do with the son speaking as he comes into this world, a world that is under the sway and influence of the evil one. 1 John 5.19. Hebrews 1.5 through 6, however, involves the father speaking as he brings the son into the future world of universalistic salvific glory, universal salvific glory. Thirdly, third reason why this psalm mentioning the firstborn is important. Thirdly, my God and supporter of my deliverance is what the son says to the father in Psalm 89, 26, or Septuagint 88, 27. He says to the Father, my God and supporter of my deliverance. This shows that the Son himself had need of deliverance in the days of his flesh. And this is a profound truth in Hebrews. It's also a profound truth in Romans. But you have to look a little sharper in Romans to find it. In Hebrews 5, 7, the Son, Hebrews 5, 8, is the one being spoken of in the days of his flesh was said to have offered prayers and appeals with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him. Sozein, S-O-Z-E-I-N, to save him from death. And he was heard because of his obedient reverence. This sometimes is connected with the cries of Jesus in Gethsemane, and I don't think that's wrong, but I think it's even more so related to the cries that he uttered as they're recorded in Psalm 22, save me from the lion's mouth with great cries and tears. And he was heard, even though he plunged into death and tasted death for every person, he didn't remain there. The father saved him from that and heard him, heard his prayers and answered them by resurrection because of the son's reverent obedience to the father. That's a doctrine, again, that we could follow up on in the future, or someone else can. So he was heard because of his obedient reverence, says Hebrews 5, 7. 
He who became the source of everlasting salvation, Hebrews 5, 9, needed to be saved. This accords with other royal psalms in which the king is delivered by God. And we've seen examples of, of this already in Psalm 1850, for example, Septuagint 1751, God the king is said to magnify the salvations of his king and to show loyalty to his anointed. In Psalm 20 and verse 9, Septuagint 1910, God is petitioned, save your king. Psalm 21.1 and Psalm 33.16 also fit this narrative. The need of the salvation of the son who is crowned with glory and honor and the provision of an omnipotently powerful deliverance by the father are all prominent features of Hebrews. Romans also makes much of the righteous one dying, Romans 6, 7, and Romans 8, 34, and yet being saved from death by resurrection. My righteous one shall live by his faithfulness in Romans 1, 17, and in which he, the righteous one, and all of humanity in him was justified, Romans 3, 26, Romans 4.25, Romans 5.18. Fourthly, Psalm 89 is a royal psalm that mentions, along with 2 Samuel 7.14, the everlasting character of the throne of the Son, bringing in the throne motif, which is so important both in Hebrews and in Rev the book. Two verses after saying, I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth, in Psalm eighty nine twenty seven. God says, and I will establish his seed forever and ever, and his throne as the days of heaven, Psalm eighty nine twenty nine or Septuagint eighty eight thirty. The throne motif is in keeping with the statement in the exordium of Hebrews, the opening sentence. In Hebrews 1.3, that the son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And with Psalm 45.6, Septuagint 44.7, a royal wedding psalm. Your throne, God, is for the ages and through the ages, or for the age and through the ages. Another way of saying forever and ever. Hebrews 1.8. In Hebrews 8.1, flip the script from 1.8 to 8.1, the PT says that our high priest sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The throne motif. And in 12.2 of Hebrews, he explicitly states that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God or at the right side of the throne of God. Hebrews 1.3 puts the time of his sitting down after he made purification for sins, agreeing with Hebrews 10.12. And Hebrews 12.2 says that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God after he endured the cross. This accounts for the writer's description of the throne of God as now being called the throne of grace. Because by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for all, so that now the throne of God is a dispensary of grace to those who boldly go to it to find timely and suitable help. God, who was the Son's supporter and help, is now that to us. And his Son is our compassionate and faithful high priest. Therefore, we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. 
I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 6, which comes from Psalm 118.6 or Septuagint 117.6. Fifth reason why I think Psalm 89 and the allusion to firstborn is important here. In the title firstborn, there is the notion of the preeminence of the son. However, if we understand the father in Hebrews 1.6 to be bringing the firstborn into future world, then this must be after the firstborn was resurrected from the dead. In fact, God's son, Jesus Christ, is spoken of as and called explicitly the firstborn from the dead. In Colossians 1.18. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ is called in one breath, He's called the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This gives more depth to the conviction that Hebrews 1.6 and the verses following it are dealing with the exaltation of the son and not his incarnation. Even though, and I want to give credit where it's due, respectable scholars like Harold Atridge whose commentary I also am studying and I admire, is persuaded that Hebrews 1.6 does speak of the Son's incarnation. That's what he thinks. As we've seen, the Son ascended and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, however, only after he endured the cross, made purification for sins, and tasted death for everyone, and therefore after the father led up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus. Then he led him in to future world and commanded all the angels to worship him. That's, to me, the storyline. Or the word that people like to use today, almost ad nauseum, that's the narrative. So then, The incarnation is certainly presupposed in his exaltation, but so is his death and his resurrection by which Jesus became the firstborn from the dead. So the vision is that of the crucified and risen Jesus being exalted and inheriting a name above all the names of the angels. The apostle Peter, and 1 Peter has remarkable affinity with Hebrews in many different places. But the Apostle Peter neatly connects Christ's death for sins as the just for the unjust, in fact, as the righteous one for all the unrighteous, in 1 Peter 3.18, with the exaltation of Christ. And so he neatly connects Christ's death for sins with his exaltation, saying, quote, Christ, who died for the sins, died for sins once for all, 1 Peter 3.18, has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. 1 Peter 3.22. So it's entirely logical that the angels who are subjected to him would be commanded to worship him. Sixthly, sixth reason why Psalm 89 and its reference to the firstborn is important in Hebrews 1.6. The community of the firstborn, as it's called in Hebrews 12, whose names have been registered in heaven, Hebrews 12.23, are pictured on Mount Zion and in the city of the living God. There's, again, a remarkable affinity between that vision and Revelation 14.1 through 4, where the Lamb is pictured with 144,000, which is a symbolic number of an innumerable company of believers, a new Israel or an Israel of God that includes the old Israel and, a, and the church both together. They're pictured on Mount Zion with the lamb. And so in Hebrews 12, we have the blood of Jesus. It speaks better things than the blood of Abel. 
and we have the church of the firstborn. Same thing. But there is no community of the firstborn without the firstborn having been perfected in solidarity with his brethren through suffering and death. So again, there is this community of the firstborn on Mount Zion and in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And again, there is no community of the firstborn without the firstborn having first been perfected, Hebrews 2.10, in solidarity with his brethren through suffering and death, followed by his resurrection from the dead. So it can be argued, whether successfully or not, is yet to be seen, but it can be argued that the church of the firstborn or the community of the firstborn whose names are registered in heaven is the same community that is presently embattled on earth, at least part of it is. Though seen from the heavenly and futuristic perspective, they are the spirits of just people made perfect and the community of the firstborn in the heavens. In any case, the community of the firstborn is his community. Because as Colossians 3, 1 to 3 says, they died when he died, or we died when he died, and we were raised together with him when he was resurrected as the one with preeminence and as the firstborn of many siblings. So here we have a veiled reference to what I call instauration in that the community of the firstborn are all those who were crucified with Christ, the firstborn from the dead, and then raised with him and seated with him in heavenly districts. Seventh reason, and we're moving to a close, the seventh reason why it's significant that we by Gezerah Shawa, referred to Psalm 89 and its reference to the firstborn. Because the firstborn has entered future world, we can say, or rather he can say, mihi cura futuri, which is a Latin phrase, mihi, M-I-H-I, cura, C-U-R-A, futuri, F-U-T-U-R-I, which means, to me, the care of the future. Jesus can say to you, to me is the care of your future. In fact, mihi cura cura futuri, said by Jesus, means that he is our future. Jesus inhabits your future and mine. Jesus is your future and mine. The reality of the future is Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. What I'm saying is that we see our destiny when we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. For as many as God justifies, he also glorifies Romans 8.30. God justified his son in raising him from the dead. The son's justification is our justification. The justification of all human beings without any exceptions. Now for that I would refer you to a 10-part doctrinal series called Romans Doctrines, the Doctrine of Justification. It started in July 28th of 2019 and ended in September 29th, 2019. Now, when the Son was given life, that's in the life of resurrection, we were given life, for in Christ all will be made alive. And Romans 5.18 combines the gift of 
justification. Remember, the new covenant is a covenant of righteousness or justification. Romans 5.18 combines the gift of justification and the gift of life as one gift. And it says that all receive, all receive life-giving justification through the one righteous act of Jesus Christ, who is the second and the final SIR, single inclusive representative of all humanity. His one righteous act was the act of his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. In his resurrection was his justification, and in his justification was your justification, and in his glorification we are glorified. And that's our destiny. And that's all destinies. As Jesus is present to our future, as our forerunner, who has entered into the region beyond the veil, so we are present in him in our future, in that sense. If we are in him and he is in us, and that's the case, but he is in the heavens, then we are in him in the heavens in one sense. So we are present in him in our own future. This is why we are said to have this hope as an anchor for the soul that enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. Because our hope goes into future world with Jesus, Hebrews 6.20, who is our hope, Colossians 1.27, 1 Timothy 1.1. And when Christ, who is our hope and who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3.4. So our future will be our only present when the coming age comes fully and when Christ appears a second time with salvation, Hebrews 9.28, salvation of which he and we are the objects. Hebrews is all about this hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. He is the reality of hope. And because of that, our hope is secure and certain, and our faith is the substance of things hoped for, as well as the evidence of everlasting things, which are not presently seen by physical eyes. When God gave us his son, he gave us hope, and he gave us a future in glory. Now, as usual, we are praying together and we're praying for our nation. And with regard to that, consider Psalm 80, the 80th Psalm. And that's all for now.